listening to the Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tusa, and today I have the privilege of interviewing author Roger Kamenetz about his book, The History of Last Night's Dream. Roger's an award-winning poet, author, and teacher. His accolades for his writings are, frankly, too numerous to mention. He's previously taught at LSU, where he was a professor of English as well as a professor of religious studies, and he founded the Master of Fine Arts program in creative writing and the Jewish study minor. Welcome to the show, Roger. Thanks, Michael. It's so nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I tell you what, let's start this way. I've read the book and found it fascinating, but maybe for our listeners, if I can get you to maybe read the introduction or whatever to give them kind of a sense of what the book is about, we can start with that. Right. So, I will. And um, uh, appropriately, uh, this part of the book is um, mentions that it's, written in New Orleans, January 2007, so already uh, 14 years ago, or 15 years ago, the descent into dreams. The whole world inside us is asleep. We wake to it, but rarely. We glimpse and barely remember, or we don't understand what we've seen. A third of our time on Earth, we've spent sleeping with little to show, an image, a face, only rarely does a dream come that wakes us to ourselves. Will our lives someday be forgotten as we have forgotten our dreams? Mm. I know there is a conscious mind and an unconscious, but I don't always think about what that implies. And more than half of who I am and what I am is completely unknown to me, except in fragments and glimpses, images and dreams. Is it possible that all we don't know about ourselves includes also the most important thing? That our self-knowledge is trivial by comparison, and yet we use only our conscious awareness to guide our lives. And so we miss receiving great gifts that have been waiting for us all along. To receive these gifts, we must learn how to dream, which sounds easy enough. But I mean dreaming with a purpose, learning to use dreaming as a way to depth. That proved difficult, at least for me. I had to make a wayward pilgrim's progress to the dream because I had so much to unlearn, and I am a slow unlearner. The progress falls into three parts, which I've titled Images, Interpretations, and dreams. First, I had to learn the true power of images. Then I had to unlearn the ancient reflexes of interpretation. Only then could I explore the world of dreams. That's excellent. And you know what? That kind of leads me into the first question that I had kind of written up. And that is, in the book early on, you write that we need to learn how to, quote, use dreams as a way to depth, close quote. What do you mean by that? Well, Michael, when, when, when we think about our lives consciously in waking life and start uh, making plans or trying to solve problems, um, we are using only part of our uh, full capacity. We're using primarily the rational mind and logic 
and previous experiences, and along with those experiences, sometimes um, we've taken the wrong lesson. You know, experiences of pain and disappointment, difficulty may frame or condition how we plan for the future. We have this wonderful capacity called imagination, and uh, it's a capacity really to envision scenarios in a holistic way, in an imaginative way. And this capacity that we all have, you have, I have, everyone has, this primary imagination that we all have, uh, is most alive in our dreams. So if we can learn to let dreams help us reframe our experience, then we suddenly have a different capacity for looking at our lives that is so extraordinary. And I think um, this is really the path that, I, that I'm that i on that I try to help others find uh, by working with their dreams. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about how you get to that point, because um, I found it fascinating. In the book, though, you talk about the numerous theories about dreams, you know, the Freudian, the Jungian, and the interpretations. But I was intrigued by a point in the book where you mention a distinction between the biological purpose of dreams and the cultural purpose of dreams. Can you explain that? Right. And this is actually a good example, Michael, of this same general idea that, mm-hmm. you know, we live in a scientific, materialistic age, and uh, there's a claim that the, the only truth is objective and uh, scientific um, in that sense of excluding the subjective, which is bizarre in a way because we're excluding ourselves because mostly we live subjectively. Um, so in, in thinking about um, um, uh, I'm sorry, I lost my thread there. That's okay. Thinking about the bio- biological versus oh, yeah, the cultural. Exactly. That's good. Thank you so much. I'm sorry. No problem. Um, so a lot of books on dreams do talk about the biology or the, uh, the physiology, I guess we could say, which arises you know, starting in the 50s with uh, Dr. William DeMent's sleep studies at Stanford and the realization that you know, while you were watching people sleep and observing the different shifts in uh, metabolism and uh, brain function, uh, we noticed there's a stage of sleep. Everyone knows about it, of course, REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, and that dreams often um, are prominent there. But, well, we've come a long way using PET scans and so forth to understanding what happens in the brain, in the dreaming brain or the sleeping brain. Um, it doesn't really tell the crucial thing. You know, you can see someone in a lab in REM sleep and wake them up and you could, they'll say, yeah, I'm having a dream. But what we can't do is say, well, what does it mean to you? How does it change you? What, right? All we can record is the person's dream and what they say it is, but not really the inner meaning of it. Mm -hmm. So um, if we emphasize too much the science of it, we might end up with a position like Dr. Francis Crick, the great discoverer uh-huh. of DNA, who turned, you know, not discoverer of DNA, but the structure of right. DNA. But, but he turned in his later life to consciousness questions. Like, that's the big question. What's consciousness, right? And um, he said, uh, all dreams are just neuronal garbage. Best to forget them. Just, you know, they're just the brain cleaning itself up at night. And so uh, you have the dream, forget about it. And so that's a very radically uh, materialistic attitude towards mm-hmm. dreams. 
Well, you know, you just mentioned something about subjectivity versus objectivity. And I'm wondering, in the book, you talk about, and, and again, I'm, I'm trying to learn here as I listen to you, you talk about the struggle between the word and image and, right. you know, the dominance of the word that we have. It sounds a little bit right. like subjective versus objective, perhaps. But why is the dominance of the word relevant when we're discussing dreams? What's the issue there? Well, um, we, you know, we are very uh, educated to, to work with words and the logic of words. And, you know, in, in many cases, um, to, be, to have higher education is to have learned a very refined and particular language, whether it's the language of science or the language of law. Um, you know, even as an English teacher, there's a language about how we talk about literature, for instance, critical language. So we have these very refined and sophisticated languages all in words to, to be precise about what we're talking about, and that's very useful. Images are quite different because an image is, images, as the word imagination suggests, you know, images arise spontaneously from within us. They're like a natural resource of images. So it, um, I believe that um, as human beings, we are constantly producing images uh, from within, but we're not aware of it during the day because we're preoccupied with what our senses are giving us. You know, William Blake, mm -hmm. great visionary poet, said that he viewed mere seeing as a hindrance to his imagination, right? So, right. See, <laughs> because, you know, when you close your eyes, you can really see. You see the images that are coming up, and they're so unique to who you are. And obviously dreams are, for most people, that's where they experience this uh, most spontaneously. Yeah, you know, but, but how do we learn, this is going to sound like an oxymoron, to think in images. I don't. I guess when I read it, I found it fascinating, but I was wondering: Are you suggesting that we go to like a pre-language skill? skill? Um, wow, that's a great question. So, um, you know, first of all, embedded in the language, even the abstract language that we use, are more concrete images. Mm -hmm. You take the word abstract language, for instance. Ab means to. Uh, to draw back, you know, abstract means to draw back, mm -hmm. right? The word um, uh, language has something to do with long, lengua, lengua, the tongue, right? Okay. So if, if every time you saw the word language, you actually went to the etymology, the root of it, and saw the word tongue, suddenly you'd have an image, mm -hmm. right? You'd begin to be thinking in images. So our actual language is full of imagery, but... We forget that uh, for convenience sake. Um, the poetic in us, and we're all poets in a way, uh, is a search for the images that are hidden in language. And so um, that's one piece. So there's an image depth to our language, and those who uh, can be in touch with that have a richer relationship to language, I believe. Um, we can learn to read and it's, it's imaginative literature that draws us there, right? When we read a novel or a poem, um, we need to learn how to think it in images. They're not, we don't want to abstract away. We're, then we're missing the whole point of it, right? We're missing yeah. the genuine feeling that's in the work. 
It, it, so, it, go yeah. ahead, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. So I guess my point is we're already thinking in images and maybe we don't realize it. Is it a form of meditation? I mean, I, I, I guess when I was trying to work my way through thinking about it, um, mm-hmm. I thought of the instances when you're meditating and kind of everything falls away, but you're still seeing. Is that, is mm-hmm. that what we're talking about when, we talk, when you talk about images? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I make a sort of distinction between okay. meditation practices, which for most people uh, involves, for instance, watching the breath or learning to calm down, uh, to observe right. things with equanimity, with, with calm. And that, that's a very useful thing. But let's say once we've entered that state, can we then encounter an image without having to um, um, yeah. dominate it with our thought? Can mm-hmm. we subtract ego from our encounter and feel the encounter with the image or with what's called the imago? You know, the poet Basho, great you know, Japanese poet, haiku master, says, if you want to learn about the bamboo, you have to become the bamboo. Right. If you want to write about the bamboo, you have to become the bamboo. Well, how do you become the bamboo? It's not that easy. <laughs> but one thing that has to go is Roger Kamenitz and all his needs and concerns and right. neurotic fixation. That all has to go if I'm going to become the bamboo or the butterfly or the rose right. or or the thorn. So, um, you know, I work a lot with people trying to get them to feel the actual images that arise in their dreams. Um so they can make a deeper impact. So I use the word contemplation, Michael. Okay. That is, All right. we Good. contemplate an image, and over time, we become the image. I, I could give you an example if you sure. like. Yeah, do that. Uh, okay, so let's put ourselves in a dream. Um, and any dreams I quote from a client that they've given me permission to use, right. just, just to be clear, I don't want to, I wouldn't violate anyone's privacy. But this fellow's. Um, um, got a, a really difficult relationship with his father and is very hurt by it and really is looking for mentors. And I'm just, that's his just basic situation. So in the dream, he's standing on the beach with a guy who is very famous in waking life and who he looks up to. And instead of being real with him, he's basically just talking and talking and buttering him up, you know, not being authentic, trying to flatter him hoping to win his favor. And they're flying a kite together. Suddenly the kite lifts up and drifts away, and he goes running after it, and it's he looks up and sees it in a tree. So there's an image in the dream of a, t- of a kite broken and tangled in a tree. Now, the interpretive approach is, oh, it's a symbol. Right. Right. But what we try to do is a little bit different. Maybe it's the same, I don't know, in some ways, but it's a little different. So I ask him to gaze at the kite to slow the dream down. You know, we're, re- we're obviously reliving it together. Gaze at the kite. Describe what you see, first of all. So he sees the broken pieces, the sticks sticking out. It's tangled in the branches. And then I ask him to feel, well, what is that? What feeling comes up for you as you gaze at that and It's a feeling of pain, of brokenness. Hmm. And so the ultimate of that, and I think it's true for the most important images in our dreams, is very similar to what Basho says. We become the bamboo, Mm -hmm. in this case, become the broken kite. And I had him actually twist his body and feel into being the broken kite. And then 
then we understand when he feels his own pain and brokenness, then we understand why he's flattering the guy on the beach. Yeah. Right. Right. The dream is revealing for us the hidden meaning of his behavior. Hmm. All right. Well, let's let's go from there. And there's another part in the book where you write that dreams can be used, quote, to transform a person, to heal, to change and repair what's broken inside, close quote. And you've just kind of given us a little bit of an example of that. I think in your case, and you write this in the book, some of this had to do with your relationship with your father as well. How how can dreams do that? How can they, and let's use the parental relationship. You don't have to talk about yours, but how can you use dreams to repair a relationship? Yeah. So, um, first of all, um, dreams um, present relationship mm-hmm. uh, in so many ways. We live, you know, in the waking life world, um, we're so conditioned to think of ourselves as the only thinking being, and the, and the rest of the world is, is basically inert until we pay attention to it. Right. You know, I think, therefore, I am. A yep. Cartesian mm-hmm. idea. So a kite in a tree is just a kite in a tree. It's just an object out there, right? We analyze it. We can tell what it's made of and so forth, right? Who manufactured it? Uh, why did it break in the tree? But when we become the kite, then we really know. We're speaking the language of images, right? And we know that it means something. It's not an accident in the dream, but actually a deeply meaningful um image. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, but I'm, I'm curious how that we, because when I read it, I was thinking, okay, it, you're suggesting that I can somehow dictate in my dream a more positive spin on, say, a bad relationship, and that that will ultimately make that relationship better. Am I misreading that? Um, no. Okay. I, I think that in the case of the book, I, I was... Um, I learned, um, I got to see, first of all, the first important work with dreams is to learn the difference between feeling and reaction. Okay. So, um, you know, if every time you see a parent in the dream, you're having a reaction, it could be anger, it could be um, 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 just, um, you know, Mm-hmm. Yeah, it could be anger. Okay. That's probably a good example. Um, so then you're unable to really relate to the person because you're just in reactivity. You can only relate to people through feeling. Right. In reactivity, you're in guilt, you're in shame, you're in uh, reactive anger. You're not in relationship. Right. It's only when you get to your deeper feelings, whether they're fear or um, love or joy, uh, that you can begin to have relationship. So... Uh, a good example, a really simple one, a, a client had a dream, again, well, since we're talking about fathers, um, mm-hmm. um, and in the dream, um, he was, um, his father was standing near a particular fireplace in his home that was painted white, and for him that had a particular meaning because it was a certain time in his life when he left for college that the fireplace had been repainted. Mm-hmm. So he felt, oh, uh, I'm leaving for college. And um, he, his father was standing in front of the fireplace, and uh, he was about to walk out the door. And for some reason, based really on previous work he'd done with other dreams, 
he stopped leaving. He turned around. He came to his father and hugged him. And in that moment of embrace, uh, he wept, and he felt so much connection, connection he hadn't fully felt in waking life. Mm. Okay. So the dream offered a kind of rehearsal, and it offered a turning. He literally turned around to see um, this man and felt the need to come closer to him. And again, dreams are very concrete. Coming closer, we speak of, you know, I, I want to be close to you mm. in, as a metaphor, but in the dream, you actually physically do come close. You know, the the movement in the dream is all is a movement not just in the space or time of the dream, but also the feeling in the dream. Well, I think you made this point in the book that you can repair relationships not only with folks who are still around, but with, uh, and let's use parents as an example, folks who have passed on. Am I Absolutely. understanding that correctly? Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, these are very poignant kinds of dreams where our dead um, come to us. And it's interesting because when you talk to people, most people, I shouldn't generalize, but I, I think it's fair to say yeah. most people don't take dreams very seriously. Uh, and I've, I understand that. I, mean, I remember when I started doing this work and I was still at LSU and I had a somewhat cynical colleague, you know, I was telling him I was working with dreams and he said, Oh, are you going to have, read Palms, too? <laughs> you know, right, have right. reader advisor in front of your house. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, that attitude um, is out there, obviously. Well, that's, um, we have an anti-intellectual stream throughout this country. And so uh, if I can jump on that real quickly. So it's not surprising that some folks would be dismissive. Well, I mean, he, he was an intellectual. He was just anti-dealing with anything that wasn't uh, objective, I guess. Right, right. Um, yeah, it's a different matter, but yeah, I agree with you on that as well. Um, but I, I think that um, um, when the dead, our dead, come to us in dreams, most people, when that happens, they take that dream seriously. Sure, yeah. And it, it's so deeply meaningful. And, um, you know, I think that... Um, uh, I've worked through that with so many clients where, um, uh, you know, the dead will come back. Um, and sometimes it's surprising, you know, um, you know, someone might have lost her husband and um, then suddenly he comes back in a dream and they have a cup of coffee and then he goes off to work. Well, you know, let me ask you this. I, I just think listening to you made me think of it. Why is it, if you know, that some dreams, you know, we wake up in the morning and they kind of fade away, you know, like the mist in the morning, and then others we will remember for years and years and years? Mm. Well, I'm tempted to ask you what dream you're thinking about, because I'm sure that's true for you, or you wouldn't have asked it. Yeah, but, it is. Uh, it is. It's the death of a friend. That. Yeah, the death of a friend. And right before I got married, she shows up in a dream, and I can still sit here and describe where we were at, and that's 30, well, 20-something years ago. Why would Isn't I remember that, that one, but not remember what I dreamt last night? Isn't that powerful? Yeah. Well, obviously, um, there's a lot of feeling in such a dream, mm -hmm. I assume. And this feeling, this encounter, sometimes the feelings in our dreams are richer and more profound than many of the feelings we've ever had in waking life. Um, and um, I think... Um, the, the short answer is we could remember more of our dreams and they could be taken more to heart if we made the effort. 
I mean, when I work with people, you know, with client, I work with clients all over the world, basically. Mm-hmm. And when I work with people, um, sometimes in the beginning, there's a struggle to remember dreams. Mm-hmm. But once we've talked over a few dreams, and we, I've had them do the work of returning to a moment of feeling in the dream, right. and just feeling it um, a couple times a day, the dreams come, because dreams respond to dreams. Hmm. And thinking and talking about dreams, remembering dreams, causes you to dream more. And so I'm sure, Michael, if you uh, right now spend a few moments um, in the next 24 hours thinking about this one dream, you'll have another dream. I got you. Um, I guarantee it. And if you take the time, and you may have to rearrange your routine, if you take the time when you have the dream to, if you can't jot down the whole dream, just Mm-hmm. Write down an image. Just write down a word. And when you have time, record as much of the dream as you can and pay most attention to the moments of feeling, whether you're encountering a person where that's the richest feeling, or an image, like, for example, the broken kite. It doesn't matter, although the encounters with persons are usually the most memorable well let me so i appreciate that let me ask you this because i know i get asked this by friends periodically if i mention a dream they'll say you know i never remember any of my dreams why is it if you know that some people will remember their dreams and others will not well my joke would be why is it some people are good at playing tennis and other people (laughs) practice (laughs) good good answer i think we can all remember our dreams okay all right here, there is a barrier to it. I remember it's sort of like this. Um, you haven't been paying attention to your dreams for 10 years. Suddenly you say, oh, I'm going to start remembering my dreams. You don't remember your dream that after you woke up or it slips away. So you say, oh, forget about it. But, but, I mean, obviously, you have to kind of make an effort over time. Right. And the other thing I tell people is um, don't be so strict in your opinion about what a dream is. is. A dream could just be... Um, an image. I mean, in the book, I tell the story of how when I worked with my teacher, I had a dream, and the only thing I remembered was the word crickets, mm-hmm. literally. And right. from that one dream, he took so much, and it, it moved me so much. So um, there's a lot of power in the images, and they're very compact little um clusters of information, right? They carry, they radiate, they're, you know, they're, they're like radiating light and energy um, in a very compact way. That's why images are so rich. You know, they take, and they take time to soak in. They're different from words. They're, they're less precise than words, but more powerful. Well, let me, all right, so you do talk in the book a little bit about things that block us from remembering our dreams, right? And especially mm-hmm. in ref, reference to revelation-type dreams or revelatory dreams, right? Right, right. What are, what are some of those things? Well, marijuana. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Go ahead. All right. <laughs> you know, if you're on medical marijuana, that's the only thing we're talking about here. Right, right? correct. Uh, it will uh, definitely interfere with uh, dream recall. That's, that's okay. All right. Notice that with clients um, who are only on medical marijuana, for sure. But um, also, uh, the the way your day begins. I mean, it, if, if you... 
wake up to the news, you're not going to remember your dreams because you're immediately engaging yourself with the things of the world, right? Mm. You have to wake up. Uh, sometimes it helps to, if you're trying to remember your dream, just don't move your body too much. If you mm -hmm. can, stay in the posture you're in and maybe be patient and the dream will come to you. Okay. Um, that That's helpful. Um, I've suggested, you know, some people keep a notebook by their beds or they have a little tape recorder. I, I've come to use my iPhone, mm -hmm. uh, the, the notes piece, you know, and I can type in things. So um, those are all helpful ways of, of remembering your dreams. Well, we're, we're going to run out of time here, unfortunately. But let me ask this. You do talk a lot about waking dreams. And mm -hmm. I want to make sure that that's clear because I'm, I'm thinking, is that the same thing as make-believe? You know, if I'm uh, driving and listening to the radio and I imagine I'm a rock star, is that a waking dream or are you referring to something else? And yes, I have done that. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> well, um, there's two pieces. I mean, obviously, this is what we call daydreaming, right. uh, fantasizing. Um, and if um, and it can slip into dream states, obviously. And, um, you know, the Tibetans rather usefully talk about uh, consciousness. There's something called body sense mind, where you're in your body and your senses, you're alert, you're in your body. And there's dream mind, and dream mind can happen whether you're asleep or awake. You can mm -hmm. just, I, this is what I was suggesting, that our imaginations at work all the time, but because in waking life the visual field is flooded, and if you're driving, let's hope you're paying attention to the road, uh, you're not picking up on the images inside. But, you know, let's say you walk into a room and you see someone you don't dislike. I mean, you do dislike. You know, mm -hmm. some people say they have a visceral response, like you can feel it in your gut, right? My heart sank, or I felt something in my belly, or I felt cold, or whatever it is, I tightened. If you really close your eyes for a moment, you might actually see an image. Hmm. Okay. Right. Likewise, if you see a person you really care for, and your heart opens for a moment, you might see an image like a flower opening or something... It's personal to you what you see, but if you you can tune into this image making capacity awake or asleep, but you have to again insert. You have to practice to do yeah, it. Yeah, We've learned yeah, not yeah. to do it. Well, and you talk a little bit in the book about uh, dream homework and and what that consists of. Um, right. Unfortunately, this is all the time we have for today. Um, That's okay. This has been fascinating. You've been listening to the Writers Forum. And I'm your host, Mike Tucson. I've been privileged today to interview Roger Kamenetz about his book, The History of Last Night's Dream. I encourage you to pick up a copy. It's absolutely fascinating. Roger, thank you so much. Right. Could, could I mention that I'm here in New Orleans? Yes. And if people want to reach me, um, my website is uh, Kamenetz.com, which is hard to K-A-M-E-N-E-T-Z dot com, and there's information there about the dream work and other stuff I do, so I'm happy to hear from y'all. Okay. Thanks, Roger. <laughs>